Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. April 25th, 2022. Uh, Emmanuel Macron is uh, uh, has won. Uh, uh, incumbent president has has won uh, for the first times. Um, in 20 years um, in France, uh, the second term um, is secured for the same president and now all eyes are on the parliamentary elections to be concluded in June. Uh, rest assured, we, we do focus on that because we, we see at Visegrad Insight how, how France's position and uh, Macron's leadership impacts the future of Europe, an important theme in our foresight uh, research and and in our deliberations with, with authors and fellows. And also, uh, Mr. Jansa uh, lost uh, his, uh, his race uh, with only 22% uh, of the votes casted for him, for his SNS party in Slovenia. And the lead is with over 10% uh, by the Freedom Party, which is a Green Party, uh, climate sensitive, liberal, liberal left uh, center party uh, by, run by Mr. Golub, uh, whose profile we briefly also discussed along with Mr. Jansa in the recent article by Albin Sibera. So, that's the stage of of this week uh, and of course in the background we have the meetings in Ukraine meetings that Mr. Zelensky has recently described as uh, uh, war selfies or uh, something like that uh, where a lot of politicians still continue to travel to Kiev and I think it's a good thing they do travel and they do show support this time with the US um, government, uh, Antony Blinken and uh, Mr. Lloyd, uh, coming to Kiev with some concrete deliverables. Now, the question is, of course, uh, how much France will, French elections uh, would change in the overall effort, war effort and support of the Europe to, to Ukraine. Hopes are placed in, in Macron in his vision of a strong tandem between France and Germany. But that will take a lot uh, still to, to transform from the reluctant, uh, if not uh, something else, uh, German government uh, to, to, to a government that cooperates with friends in the effort to help Ukraine end this war uh, on terms that would guarantee a long-term peace. But uh, these are not the only stories. These are the obvious highlights. And and Miles, um, I'm sitting here with Miles Maftian. My name is Wojciech Szybelski. Um, and and we're thinking what other stories are are important for democratic security in Central Eastern Europe. So Miles, what's your take? Well, <clears throat> first off, it does seem as if Zelensky is Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. The only difference is that you have a couple of different actors who are actually going to to see him, right? Um, this was also news as well that mm, Romania and some officials from Romania will, will go and visit Kiev and they have also been the ones to say that they want to reopen um, offices and diploma, diplomacy once again with in, in Kiev. 
so you see that that happening. But I think more generally, one of <clears throat> one of the more interesting stories is that on Wednesday, I believe, the U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, he's going to meet with representatives from forty uh, allied countries, so basically twenty NATO countries. Um, they'll meet at Ramstein's U.S. military base in Germany to discuss Ukraine's long-term security needs. And kind of mixed together with this, not only Ukraine's long-term security needs, but what's actually happening in the region. So what what did occur this last week that is so impactful? Well, as we know, Russia has established control over southern Ukraine. And this kind of allows them to, what many people are saying, it allows them to sort of secure another route uh, that Russia might actually launch an, an attack from this Russian-controlled part of Transnistria on either Ukraine or other parts of Moldova. So there we, you know, we know that this is the main Russian playbook. And of course, this is something that we have to be worried about. The base evidence that a Russian-speaking population is being oppressed, it gives them their, quote, legitimacy to sort of use military action um, as if they've done recently in other regions. Yes, at the same time, not all of southern Ukraine is captured by Russia. Right. So the uh, apparent assault on Odessa has been um, has been sabotaged uh, by the strike on the Moskva ship, and and Russians now think double think you know think twice before before they um, before they try to launch an. An, uh, an assault on the on the shores near Odessa, which is uh, in the close vicinity to Transnistria, there are very worrying signs, of course, for Moldova itself. Uh, and unfreezing that frozen conflict uh, in in Moldova is more than just a worry for the region. It is uh, again a big worry for the European Union, as Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia were the three countries most advanced and most outspoken about their path towards uh, path towards uh, European uh, European Union membership at at some point. So um, undermining the stability in these two undermines the European Union credibility overall uh, in terms of you know what the EU can deliver. That's one point of view, of course. This is more, I would say, this is the perspective of the Russian from their points of objectives, um, from their point of, um, of view. Um, anyone trying to balance this, uh, you know, must see that the Russians are attacking those countries which are... Um, undermining their vision of the world in which they control these gray zones and and frozen conflict zones and and they uh, they maintain a certain balance of of their preference uh, that that no one else is now uh, preferring anymore so so that in in a way shows also the uh, the success story of the European Union project um, but, uh, I mean, the prospects of success rather than, than ultimate success and, uh, and, the, and the promises that the EU uh, association and then membership may offer uh, are, are so much prized by, 
uh, by the countries uh, that are on this path, that are on the um, with, that they have the aspiration and they want to transform in order to get there. So um, yeah, th these are definitely worrying signs and equally worrying were the words of, of uh, uh, Austrian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Mr. Schallenberg, who said that he doesn't see uh, a fast track membership for e Ukraine cooling down these expectations and adding to that that, you know, we should look at Albania, North Macedonia, yeah. uh, those countries that have been demonstrating also some progress and they've been in a line, so there shouldn't be given some priority. I mean, there is some, there is some reason in it, um, but at the same time, I think the EU governments m must be carefully uh, carefully uh, balancing between, you know, where's where's the uh, where's the ultimate goal of of uh, European Union? Is it in filling in all the formal procedures, or is it also in the you know capturing the certain spirit of um, um, of, mobil of mobilizing towards? Um, towards uh, democracy that, that Ukraine clearly shows. And that's not to say that Albanians or North Macedonians haven't shown that. Of course, uh, you know, but there's also this other element that the EU has its own internal issues, definitely when it comes to democratic security. So the worrying part of this from, from my take, being someone who has, you know, implemented projects and studied disinformation and so forth, Romania is one of those countries in the region that really is a bedmark of where a lot of disinformation can take place. And so I'm, I'm on the lookout and I am extremely worried that the internal security, the democratic security of the country could also be threatened by this, right? Um, and, and what kind of news will be filtered in not only in, in Moldova, but also through Romania. And this is just something to highlight because on Thursday, our March and Kroll fellow, Alina Barganau, will actually discuss, you know, the current disinformation scene in Romania. And this is certainly something that, that, I'll, that I'll ask about and I'll touch upon. And for our listeners, if, if, if you subscribe, you can certainly attend this event as well, which will be an exclusive uh, event. But not only in Romania you see this, but if you, you move a little west uh, in, in Hungary, that is the other big question. That's the other big worry about democratic security within the EU. And you, you see already Orban, he's kind of up to his old tricks. Um, now he's stating that he wants to amend the constitution again for the 10th time. Um, and, and this time to actually expand the state of emergency clause. Right. And this was due to sort of regional security concerns, let's say, quote unquote, regional security concerns. And I, I think a lot of us can say it's obviously just Orban being Orban and what else can be done here? What, of course, this is a move that he's doing. But for someone who has also looked into, you know, emergency clauses in different constitutions, and then I've seen more recently from the actual COVID situation, it's Emergency clauses are written in a way that are supposed to not be so expansive. They're supposed to be very limited. And the use of emergency emergency powers within the region more recently has been really, really troubling. 
right? And you oftentimes have to ask yourself, is this really the only way that we can deal with such issues? Well, true, true that, that, you know, expanding geographically must be also taken, you know, it has to have the, the perspective of democratic security. Um, but in, in many ways that I don't, I wouldn't say that we are, we, we shouldn't uh, opt for uh, more Europe uh, when, when we know that already two thirds of the European Union population lives in flawed democracy regimes. Yeah. I mean, the Economist Intelligence Unit uh, marks uh, countries like France already and Spain recently as flawed democracies that are having free elections, but there are some significant deficiencies. This is not putting uh, every such uh, political regime in the same basket as Orban. He's, uh, he's pretty unique, but he's also a flawed democracy. He's mm -hmm. not by the same statistics. It is not uh, considered by the, um, by the economists, at least, um, something else, something like Turkey, a right. hybrid regime. So, so if we have a situation in which uh, many of those countries are struggling, true, uh, with democracy, democratic security is is at risk. Um, not accepting additional uh, countries that are fighting for democracy, Ukraine case, or or uh, they are showing improvement. Um, uh, North Macedonia, Albania, is undermining the whole of 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 the EU uh, project. And I think there are other calculations that are here, not so much focused on democratic security that are in place that uh, that the countries might see them, you know, uh, reluctant to, to accept uh, other other countries. Let me think of Ukraine as a country that would add a significant number of population to the EU decision-making right. structure on the European Council. And that is so uncomfortable for for many other countries that uh, that are affluent but not very populous, and they are net payers like Austria. So I can understand the reluctance that comes within uh, EU as well. When we when we look at the um, at the case of of EU neighborhood and, and enlargement, and also from that point of view, the the elections in in, in France so far, the presidential and and the upcoming par uh, parliamentary elections are so important, because France has been um, um, opposing uh, an, an enlargement, and Macron will have uh, Macron will have um, a unique chance to <clears throat> show leadership in that respect, or. Right. Uh, or not. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, c coming back to kind of the region, there's also this other <laughs> debate that we're starting to see and something that we wanted to to highlight in a piece uh, that will be forthcoming this week by, by Viet Dostal. So essentially, it's this discussion on whether calls for leaving the, the Visegrad group are warranted, given Orban's uh, election victory. So n not only the way that, that the country and himself has actually acted in regards to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but there's a lot more there. And, you know, the argument that, that Dostal makes is that we shouldn't just abandon Visegrad 
it won't die out, but we should make it a little bit more difficult for Hungarians uh, to actually shape their own PR in this sense. And I know that this is something uh, that will be an ongoing debate. You can subscribe to the website to to um, to read this full piece. I'm not going to talk about all of it here, and possibly we will have an event on this as well, to because I think this is a, a very central debate that we should be having right now. Yeah, and I, I think this is uh, one. I mean, the European Union is not the only superstructure that combines yeah. all of political processes within. Yeah. Uh, there, there are groupings. There are many groupings. There is Euro Eurozone. There is um, uh, there is the case of European Prosecutor, which is now also in a spotlight uh, when this haggling over over the European funds and rule of law is between the European Commission and Hungary and Poland. Um, these are different zones of integration, but there are also geographical zones of integration, which is the Visegrad group, which is not just. It There's is other not, logistical things within yeah, that too. It's not just geographical. I think, uh, just you know, as as we uh, as we have often mentioned, that there is a certain perspective that comes with experience and an ambition uh, that the Visegrad Group has demonstrated over the years in exactly uh, helping out to uh, to to you know to uh, support countries of Eastern Partnership or. Or Western Balkans, in manifesting their European ambition, in upgrading uh, their uh, their political um, culture, and and making a way for uh, for a Europe whole and free. I mean, ultimately, you know, the European Union growth in in that sense also territorially, but including other populations in. Uh, in the EU, is is just as much a, a security question, at least from mm -hmm. Central Eastern Europeans, mm -hmm. as as NATO is for uh, for the Germans or for for uh, for French. Right. But the another thing is is that a lot of people will want to through this. One thing that we're not understanding is is when a crisis like this happens and you have this outlier of Hungary within this Visegrad group, then you see which voices were the loudest in going against what. Orban was doing, and that was Poland, that was Czechia, right? And then it kind of tells you, it gives you this stronger argument that there are certain values that actually underpin a lot of the Visegrad group. And when you have this this outlier that's not within that, this call to kind of do away with the Visegrad group is 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 actually quite silly because in this sense you it's strengthening the values that underpin it. And these are sort of the the things that we should be um, that should be uniting it and making it stronger in this sense. And what what Vidosal basically says is make it more difficult for Hungarians to actually have to that it. PR. There. Yes. Yeah. Well, I was arguing in another time that Hungary should be suspended, and that's a procedure that we know from uh, authoritarian period of Mečar uh, in in Slovakia in the nineties. When Slovakia has had an empty chair, mm -hmm. it was a bit easier because Slovakia, after the Velvet divorce from Czechoslovakia, uh, did not participate until it reformed and became democratic. Um, but, but frankly speaking, yes. I mean, uh, in, when it comes to political leadership. 
Hungary should not be given any leeway in 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 um, in the Visegrad group because it did damage, and it has uh, been trying to hollow out Visegrad cooperation from 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 its bedrock, which is security. I mean, just let's just remember that Visegrad was in a way in in the original design um, a kindergarten for those countries to cooperate in order to uh, enter NATO. That was a uniting factor, uh, even before they cooperated in order to get rid of the Red Army, coordinated effort before even NATO ambition has been um, set there in stone. And and EU was on the you know a cherry on top in a way mm-hmm. uh, for uh, for all of them, and then the political ambitions and narrative and the PR that Vít mentions uh, specifically of Viktor Orbán has been hollowing out uh, the the practical and and important also uh, strengths of the strengths of of the V four which was you know a, a constructive element within uh, within EU. Much often when it was uh, less uh, politically uh, vocal and 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 much much uh, doing much of the work, you know, in the in the background you know, of the technical and sectoral cooperation and and in diplomacy uh, in the EU. So I think yeah, I mean we we need to park uh, the Visegrad of anti-migration mm-hmm. uh, aside and 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 see that it uh, survives and. Moves uh, moves ahead as a as a project that is f- you know, reinforcing the European integration, which originally, as you just mentioned, and uh, in a, in a longer prospect, it does. Right, great. That's basically the wrap up for this week. But now we'll move on to the second portion of the podcast, where Tatiana will talk about exactly this: more EU enlargement towards the Eastern Partnership. Hello everyone, welcome to our next episode on Western Balkans, part of Visegrad Insight podcast. My name is Tatiana Pola Gruich and I'm EU Neighborhood Program Manager at Visegrad Insight. I'm talking today to uh, Petr Termak, who is a researcher at the Charles University in Prague. We will be touching upon mainly uh, Czech EU presidency that is upcoming this summer and also Western Balkans, obviously, in the context of this, uh, of, of their presidency. Uh, Petr, welcome, welcome to our podcast. Hello, and thank you for inviting me to the podcast. Sure. I have a few questions uh, to you with regard to, to the topic I just mentioned. Obviously, we, we might know that uh, with the war in Ukraine, Czech Republic had to overhaul its, its presidency priorities. But still, um, what can we expect during uh, their tenancy in relation to the Western Balkans? Well, this is quite a difficult question to be answered in, in a direct way at this moment. And actually, even Czech high officials have been quite reluctant to, to answer it. And they are not uniform in their position to the Western Balkan agenda within the Czech EU presidency. And I think the reason is obvious. It's the Russian aggression against Ukraine and the fact that all attention of Czech politicians and Czech diplomacy is now devoted to to the East, and there is not much capacities and much energy left for for looking into the Southeast. So, what seemed to be clear priority for the Czech EU presidency two months ago 
when it was officially announced that Western Balkans will be one of the top foreign policy priorities for the presidency, now is sort of disappearing from the political debate. And it's quite understandable because Ukraine, the war in Ukraine changed everything. It changed global politics, it changed European politics, and it also changed the Czech domestic uh, debate on the presidency. And so currently when the Western Balkans is mentioned, it is usually in relation to the, devel to the developments in Ukraine, be it uh, Russian influence in the Balkans, energy security, or other issues which can be actually related to both of these regions. So this is probably one of the ways how the Western Balkans will still be present in the president's agenda, but probably it won't be a top priority anymore, which is understandable. But on the other hand, also this does not mean that uh, Czech presidency of the, of the European Union and Czech diplomacy will ignore the Western Balkans. Definitely not. First, it already announced that it will be a priority. So at least from the perspective of the Western Balkan countries, it positioned itself into the role of an assumably active player and assumably an active advocate of the EU integration of the Balkans. So it will have to actively deal with that. And the second thing is that I'm afraid that the second half of the year, when the Czech Republic will have the, the EU presidency, will not pass without any uh, dynamic political developments in the Western Balkan region. So the Czech Republic as the EU presiding country will inevitably have to deal with these developments and it will have to respond to that. So it will have to uh, engage in the region, but I would assume, and now I'm going back to your uh, basic and general question, that it will be rather reactive policy responding to the current developments in the region rather than any profound high-level political initiative that could uh, the Czech EU presidency offer for the region? Well, so the challenges in the Western Balkans are in, in, in several layers now already. So war in Ukraine, obviously, but then we have a pertinent political crisis in, in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. We have tensions in Montenegro, protected uh, spat between uh, North Macedonia and Bulgaria, and also unclear future of the Kosovo and, and Serbian relations. So all of these challenges are sort of uh, adding up. Um, but do you think that but Czech Republic has the plan to... Um, or what could be the plan to of, of the Czech Republic to implement this claimed priority that will still be there of reviving the stalled EU enlargement? Yeah, well, so far we don't have any official information in this regard from the new Czech government. Uh, the official program of the of the Czech presidency will be only published in June, so which will be quite late. And at this moment, we can only try to interpret some very limited public statements which have been quite ambiguous. Because a year ago, the previous government, which actually announced the Western Balkan priority for the Czech presidency, it framed the priority in quite ambitious uh, terms. I think it was the former Minister of Foreign Affairs, Kulhanek, who, who announced that Czech presidency will organize the EU Western Balkan summit in Prague with an aim to, to set the accession date for Serbia or Montenegro which sounds very ambitious. But now uh, the current political representation, as I already said, it's quite reluctant to speak directly about the region and it's very reluctant to make any such specific commitment. So 
even the question of the EU Western Balkan summit, which was already announced for the Czech presidency, seems to be now open. Uh, recently, the Czech politicians were asked by journalists about this issue. And even the top officials did not really agree on the question whether Czech Republic should organize a high-level political summit with Western Balkan leaders. It seems that Ministry of Foreign Affairs is still preparing the summit, but the office of the prime minister is quite hesitant to be involved in that because they they are not sure about the potential impact of such high-profile event given the current geopolitical circumstances and given that most of the attention is now going to, to the war in Ukraine. So it is now questionable whether there will be any any high-level political initiative. And also, I think that the Czech presidency would be in quite a difficult position to deal with some of these major issues you you mentioned, because the the room to maneuver would be quite limited also externally. Uh, I think that, for example, in in regard to to the dispute between North, North Macedonia and and Bulgaria, and generally to to the issue of opening accession talks, uh, it now depends on the French presidency how it will face this challenge and whether it will be able to bring any progress in this issue until June. And if not, I'm afraid that the Czech presidency will not be that actor who can bring any progress. If French presidency cannot do that, then the Czech presidency with more limited capacities would be in more difficult position. And also uh, regarding the, the political crisis in Bosnia, uh, there the situation might be different because the elections in Bosnia are scheduled for October. And we can unfortunately assume that the institutional crisis will escalate with the elections. So Czech presidency will be simply because of the timing of the elections in the position that it will have to deal with that. But I'm afraid that, again, this will not be any any profound initiative for institutional reform, which will be offered by the Czech presidency. It will be rather reactive policy and it will try to respond actively and engage but it will already follow the developments and then it will be responding to that. I think the similar can be expected, uh, similar approach can be expected in Montenegro. And just the last point in this regard, in uh, in relation to Kosovo-Serbia dispute, the Czech position is quite specific. Uh, Czech Republic recognizes Kosovo independence officially, but the current Czech president Zeman, together with part of the political scene, is openly advocating the Serbian position in the dispute. And Zeman repeatedly proclaimed that he doesn't recognize Kosovo. So I think that this this uh, this double-tracking of Czech foreign policy towards Kosovo and Serbia significantly limits the potential of Czech Republic in general and Czech EU presidency in particular to bring any progress in the Kosovo-Serbia dialogue. Even from the position of the EU presiding country, Czech Republic cannot really be in the role of a mediator given the domestic political dispute over this issue. I see. I have one last question for you, Pazir. Um, but perhaps the Czech Republic could do more for, Visegr- for Western Balkans uh, in the Visegrad uh, group fa- framework. What do you think? I'm afraid that the answer to this question is related to a more general question of the current political refer- current political relevance of the Visegrad Four platform, again considering what is going on in Ukraine and what are the consequences on the European level, 
because I'm not an expert in Central European politics, but from what I see, it's quite obvious that Poland and Hungary, who used to be the main allies on the EU level and who have been the, the most vocal advocates of the V4 platform, probably in, in recent years, uh, now found, found themselves on the opposite poles of the political debate on the crisis in Ukraine and on, on the European response to this crisis. So I'm afraid that at this point, uh, the capacity, the political capacity of Visegrad Forum as a platform to bring any any progress in general is quite limited. And specifically to the Western Balkan region, we see also that Viktor Orban is now... Um, is now having uh, his own very proactive, but also very one-sided policy in the region. He has been seeking allies among those local political leaders who don't really have the best reputation on the EU level. It used to be Gruevski in Macedonia, now it is Vucic in Serbia, but also Milorad Dodik in the Serbian part of, of Bosnia and Herzegovina, who is now under sanctions from some Western states. So. I think that this is a policy, the policy of Viktor Orban in in Western Balkans, which cannot be really accepted by the other states of the V4. And because of that, I think that the potential of the V4 is very limited. Thank you, Petr, for your very interesting insights. It was a great conversation, I think. Thank you for, for joining us today. Thank you. I would also like to mention that Visegrad Fund was supporting this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Please visit our website, visegradinsight.eu, to see our scenarios report that were recently published, uh, five scenarios for Western Balkans. Thank you. Bye-bye.